Welcome to the DLA Piper Infrastructure Podcast. In this series from DLA Piper, we explore how infrastructure, transport and construction are adjusting to a post-COVID-19 world. We examine the biggest challenges ahead and how businesses must evolve to meet them, both in the short and in the longer term. We discuss the impact on digital infrastructure, transport in a world of social distancing, aviation's long road to recovery, boosting construction and sustainable mobility. This episode was recorded at DLA Piper's Global Construction Conference in Dubai. It features DLA Piper partners Richard Edwards from Perth, Caroline Pope from London, Tommy Sang Munghai from Johannesburg, Alison Ether from Perth, and Susanna Newbolt from Dubai. They are discussing the findings of our brand new thought leadership report entitled Constructing the Future, Surviving and Thriving in the Era of Disruption. Richard Edwards is hosting the session. Hello again, everyone. You'll see up on the screen there the front cover of our upcoming thought leadership report. So the DLA Piper Construction Group and the ICT sector has been busy in the background preparing our thought leadership report for this year, focusing in on constructing the future and the theme that we identified today and we've spoken with you about, which is surviving and thriving in the era of disruption. I thought it apt for the team who have been responsible for preparing and delivering today's session to talk a little bit about what is being revealed in the report. Before we embark on a bit of a Q&A, I did want to just outline the approach that we've taken with the report, what our focus has been, and fortunately be able to confirm that the sorts of issues that we've canvassed today are very much reflected in the report as well. So the report started earlier this year in conjunction with Acurus Studios. We commissioned them and the DLA Piper team to go away and examine the question as to how is the construction industry coping in an era of significant macro uh, geopolitical and technological disruption. The report itself and the questions and the investigations focused on what exactly is the construction industry participants seeing across a number of major geographies, that being Europe, the Middle East and the Asia-Pacific region, and what those industry participants doing in order to mitigate risk and secure opportunities. In the second quarter of this year, what we did was engage with over 100 senior leaders in the construction industry across those regions in a series of interviews, gathering both qualitative and quantitative data. We then tested that feedback with in-depth interviews with clients and lawyers from across our own network. The report itself and it's in its final phases of drafting has focused on four areas as a consequence of those investigations. First of all, investment strategies, including the biggest risks and opportunities in terms of what participants are seeing in their own market, but also what they're seeing in other markets in which they seek to secure new work. Second, the impact of supply chain problems, particularly price increases and the risk mitigation strategies that have been adopted. Thirdly, we looked at how is the industry responding to increasing ESG scrutiny and regulation. Finally, we looked at the role of technology. It is clear that it is a powerful agent for transformation and digital disruption. Interestingly, there are particular places and locations and projects which are taking up those technological opportunities and there are places that are not. So we are seeing a patchwork of approaches 
to technology depending upon where you are and what you're doing and who you're doing it with. It is clear from the report that there are lots and lots of challenges. If we were sitting here in 2020 or 2021, early 2021, we'd be talking COVID and we'd be talking force majeure and change of law and all of those interesting things that lawyers get very excited about. What is abundantly clear, though, is that each, if you talk about COVID, if you talk about supply chain, tech, financing, inflation, interest rates, what you're seeing is a compounding effect in particular places, in particular markets, and on particular participants. There's no doubt that geopolitics, macroeconomics, and also microeconomic issues really come to the fore in terms of what construction industry participants talk to us and are curious about. That's enough from me. I'm going to throw to the panel to ask some questions. I'm going to start with Caroline. Caroline, energy inflation. That is clearly a topic that not only worries me when I go to the petrol station every fortnight and fill my car up, it also was something that worried our clients. We think the world is getting smaller, but actually regions actually have their own impacts of these things. So that is interesting. Um, Make a general point. I mean, I think how clients are managing it in two different ways, probably one will be more more appropriate for Alison to deal with, but I'll make some comment, is looking at existing contracts. You know, and as soon as, you know, in the in the UK, we've got construction price running at nearly double digits. It's very high year on year. I mean, it's scary high. So clients are coming and saying, help, what can we do? The knee-jerk reaction was, it's the war. It's the war in Ukraine. It's a force majeure. So you just have to remind them, unfortunately, force majeure, time, not money, doesn't help you with your spiralling steel costs, cement costs, et cetera, et cetera. So you then get the contract out and there's a clause in contracts which have actually often now has had a pencil put through it or actually in some of the young in this room probably have never ever looked at in their life, which is the fluctuations clauses. And those clauses have broadly come out, but if they haven't come out, you've got a set of indices so you can start applying that. But much more common in the contracts that we've been seeing with in the fixed price contracts is if you are lucky, you've got an annual inflation adjustment that's set at one, two, three percent. But that's if you're lucky. So I'd be quite surprised because I've now got clients coming to me and going, hmm, I don't think there's a way in the contract for us to get our price cost increases. And if this continues for very much longer, we are actually seriously considering the nuclear route. We're thinking if we've got a limit on liability, it's going to be cheaper for us to walk away from this contract than it is to see it through and the losses that we might incur at the end, which is going to be interesting. We'll see if it happens. It probably won't affect this region, but in the UK, I'm anticipating that we might well see that. Contractors often kind of think about it, but aren't really serious. But now if they're coming to us already balancing the limit on liability in their contracts with walking away and the costs are going to be incurred. So that's existing. The new comp projects, the assumption is that purchasers only want fixed price contracts. But in countries where we've got such incredibly, I mean, one could almost use rampant inflation, it's not really going to be in the purchase best interest to go down the fixed price contract procurement route because the size of the contingency and risk items are going to be huge. And as a consequence of that, it might actually start playing into, as you were saying, the question of cost plus with a target 
various things around that. You also need to look at your fluctuations clauses. And if you have fluctuations clauses, think about what indices you do want to use. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't think people would be paying a huge amount of attention. So it's going to be sensible to start before your clients and particularly yeah, before your clients come to you and the, for the QSs in this room to start thinking about which indices will really work for me. But of course, the problem with indices is there's always a time lag. You know, it's it's this percent this year, but actually it's reflected what's happened over the year. So you're still going to be carrying quite a considerable overhead for that cost. You can think, and perhaps one way is to use more provisional sums. We've gone away from using provisional sums, again, because of the fixed price nature of contracts. With large items that you are uncertain, you think that the cost might increase because you actually it's a long project and you're not going to be ordering for two years. Try and persuade the employer to go on provisional sums or alternatively to some arrangement on, for example, forward purchasing with advanced payments and advanced payment bonds. So there are various ways that you can start thinking about managing it. So I don't think we probably in this region won't see a move away from fixed price contracts, but I anticipate in other regions we might well. Thanks, Caroline. Can I have a bit of a change of pace and move from mitigating risk to talking about opportunity? And Tuma saying, if I can throw to you, one of the most interesting results from the survey focused in on Africa and, and what the construction industry perceives as being the opportunities there. What was interesting from my perspective was the confirmation that those industry participants who come out of my region, which is the Asia Pacific, continue to look at Africa as a place of opportunity and appreciating the concept of Africa in itself is a misnomer because of the significant cultural, religious, economic and population differences that exist. But the Asia-Pacific industry participants recognised Africa as being particularly a place they wanted to invest in. The next most enthusiastic about it were companies from the Middle East and then finally Europe. I'd be really interested in hearing from you as to what it is that you see as being the sorts of features that make African countries, you from South Africa, attractive to construction industry participants. Thanks, Richard. So poor infrastructure is one of the key impediments to growth in Africa. To this day, there remains a significant lack of access to electricity, lack of access to proper housing, and lack of access to proper roads. So that in itself presents an opportunity where industry participants can get involved in addressing this infrastructure lag in Africa. In addition to that, a lot of effort has been made by African countries to invest in infrastructure development. It's actually been reported that in the last century, African countries have spent in excess of $80 billion annually in addressing this infrastructure lag. So again, a big opportunity for industry participants to get involved in solving Africa's biggest challenge, which is infrastructure development. Now, turning specifically to South Africa, of course, South Africa is no exception to the infrastructure lag that I just spoke about. What is, however, encouraging is government's bold steps and targets in addressing this infrastructure lag. So just to mention a few, we have an initiative by the South African government that's aimed at increasing electricity generation through private sector investment in renewable energy. As a result of that, we've seen a lot of uptake in solar and wind projects over the last few years, and we certainly expect a few more in a few years to come. We have a national infrastructure plan, which is the government's 
broad plan to address this infrastructure deficit. And that focuses on energy, on water, as well as on transportation. So the South African industry at this point, when it looks long-term, there's a lot of positives in terms of future pipelines with the investments that are going to come through as a result of this national infrastructure plan. And last but not least, with the government's policy to address the COVID-19 impact on the economy, again, infrastructure development is top of the list with focus on energy and water. So these initiatives and others are certainly encouraging to international industry participants to want to get involved in projects in Africa. Africa is simply a market of untapped opportunity, and we expect to see more and more industry participants taking interest in Africa in the near future. Thanks very much, Timmy Sang. That, that's very interesting. Alison, can I move to you and, and talk to you a little bit about our region? I'm interested in some of the observations that have been made about supply chain risk. I know where we sit in the world, more or less at the bottom, depending upon your view about the way world maps are executed. It's very much the case that we are at the end of the supply chain. So we are the last port of call before ships turn around and head back to load ports. In that respect, supply chain has been critical for us. In terms of managing that critical risk, what sort of contracting strategies have you seen clients enter into? And, and bearing in mind, Alison, I think you out of a number of sort of the transactional part of the construction team do work on some very remote projects. Correct, we do. Yeah, very, very remote projects in Africa and, and in Asia and even within Western Australia, a lot of the projects we consider would be extra, are, are by any definition extraordinarily remote. Um, look, you know, I see it starting at the tendering phase. I think we are seeing employers take a much more focused view during tendering around what is the supply chain. It used to be give us your price, give us your end date and satisfy us you can do the job technically. And we're seeing a lot more focus on tell us what your procurement methodologies are going to be, tell us what your supply chain is. And I think with that information and that data, employers are far more equipped to actually assess is the program for delivery a realistic one? Is the pricing realistic? What risks should we be thinking about as we draft this contract? So I think at tendering phase, it's really about looking into what the supply chain actually looks like in a greater level of detail than I've ever seen. And then within that, you know, it's sort of separate supply chain risk. But one of the issues, of course, is modern slavery. I deal a lot in the renewable sector, in the construction and, and particularly with solar panels, they are coming from places where modern slavery is a particular issue. So we are seeing that interrogated from a, a time and cost perspective, but also a modern slavery perspective. We then moved to as we start to get into contract and, you know, when I started in practice, things like early contractor engagement agreements or early contractor involvement agreements were really reserved for projects that were either very unique and novel or highly technical in circumstances where the employer took a view that the market understood what they needed better than the employer itself. So they needed that early engagement with a contractor to really get their head around the technical nature of what was needing to be done. And that's where we saw that being used. I'm increasingly seeing over the last particularly two or three years, employers wanting to go through an early contractor involvement or an early contractor engagement process where you work together to really ensure that the contractor genuinely understands the scope of the job, truly understands the risks, both from a supply chain from a physicality, site conditions, geotech conditions, understands the practical and commercial risks that surround the project. So that as the scope and the price is built up, 
there is a greater level of certainty from the contractor in respect of what they're actually doing, but a greater level of confidence from the principal that the information and the data then be given around cost of job and time to complete is actually realistic. And then Caroline touched on it, we're seeing increasingly pressure to have early procurement works undertaken. So we're seeing a lot more early procurement agreements with advanced payments, with advanced payment bonds, which were typically reserved for large-scale infrastructure projects or long-lead equipment supply. But now it's actually just about we need to lock these guys in for two reasons. We want to lock in the pricing to the extent we can, but we also want to reserve our spot in the factory. There's a lot of reserving spot in the factory type work that's going on. So in my mind, the supply chain is really about a greater emphasis in tendering and that early procurement phase. And I think that's really, to be frank, it's been a great thing that's come from it because the jobs, and I'm not a disputes lawyer by trade, I like to leave that to people who are better than me, but increasingly, you know, if I could write a book, it would be don't accept the cheapest offer, accept the next one up, you know, because the cheapest offer is always the one where you end up in a dispute. You know, it's either I've bought the job, which is problematic even more now than it ever was, or I don't understand the job, or I don't understand the job in the particular region in which I'm about to do the work. And so I think we're seeing owners less interested in the cheapest job and more interested in a greater confidence around the contractor's understanding about the job. Thanks, Alison. Caroline, can I throw back to you in circumstances where Alison referenced you? ESG, and, and interestingly, this came up on the panel as well, the fact that there is, and the survey results reveal this, there's a continued gap between aspiration and reality, uh, you know, a gap between wanting the carrots but needing the stick. What are you seeing in terms of, of that and, and what's your view of those findings? I'm not surprised. I don't think anyone will be surprised by that. And I think we will need for a long time both the carrot and the stick. My view is that almost inevitably it will be trickled down. It has to come at government level. It has to come at governmental contracts like is happening in the UK. But it's interesting, you know, you, you hear David was even was talking about the conference he was at, and actually it was developers pushing the green development all through the planners. So I think at the end of the day, contractors want to win jobs. And if they have to win jobs through doing additional environmental ESG type things, they will do them. They will do them either because the government says they have to do them. They'll do them because their shareholders require it, their funders require it. But these are, I always feel these slightly stick-like, really, rather. I don't really know what a real true carrot looks like in this space. And so one of the interesting ones from my perspective is this. We're seeing in our region a number of the EPC contractors take equity positions on the project to mitigate the risk associated with the EPC project going bad in circumstances where if you talk in in Australian terms, the social infrastructure spend that's occurred on the east coast of Australia has been in the hundreds of billions of Australian dollars. And most of the major contractors will tell you it's been a hollow project era for them because they're not making any money. We've seen a number of our clients turn around and say, well, if I take a bit of equity in this overall project, not only am I more interested in the outcome of that, but it also mitigates the risk of me getting smashed with LDs because I'm late. So perhaps that might be a, a potential 
Susanna, can I come to you with the final question? And this is around tech. What was interesting from my perspective is the survey results indicated that certain regions were catching up in terms of technology. Some were better at it than others. But overall, what was clear was various disruptive leaps needed to be taken to pick up on Gaminda's term. From your perspective, what did you see in the survey results and what are your comments on them? Yeah, um, thank you. And I very much saw what you saw and I brought some of the stats with me, actually. So there is such a difference across different regions across the globe. We've got nearly 70% of companies in Europe saying they're using AI tools in procurement processes already. And that's only 45% in Asia and down to 30% in the Middle East. And there's less of an appetite to use robotics in the construction and assembly in Asia-Pac and Middle East than there is in Europe. But perhaps that's a reflection on availability and cost of labour. The report highlighted a trend around the tech adoption being very much aligned with the maturity of the market. And the Middle East, for example, has all been about asset creation and not asset management. This comes through loud and clear in the survey findings. 70% of respondents in Asia-Pac and Europe say they regularly use BIM and only 27% of respondents in the Middle East. And that was really stark for me. Also, interestingly, the data suggests that this differential between Europe on the one hand and its lead in technology and Asia-Pac in the Middle East is likely to widen over the next couple of years. And I thought that's, that was quite surprising, particularly after we heard about some of the positivity today on the panel about the adoption of technology here in the Middle East. And I, I sort of pondered over that. And I came to a sort of somewhere in the middle in terms of my own thinking about where we're likely to get to and thought that actually what we have here are probably isolated or or pockets of influence that are likely to drive technology adoption and possibly on the back of sustainability. So we're probably going to see great take up of some technology adoption on things like the Saudi Giga projects, but then probably our routine towers, mixed-use type developments, probably going to stay that little bit behind. And, and maybe that's where we see that gap continue to widen against Europe. The other thing that stood out to me in the report is that um, attitude to tech as a risk factor differs as well. But then again, that's probably a reflection on where the market is and how evolved it is in terms of the adoption of tech. But for Europe, the tech race is on and disruption by a tech-savvy startup is seen as a, a real risk in Europe. Whereas in the Middle East, for example, your ESG is the watchword at the moment, and it far eclipses any concerns about tech as a risk at this stage. So it really is a picture of differences when it comes to the adoption, the attitude to risk, and appetite for tech when we see the technology results of the reports. Thanks, Susanna. I think what it certainly showed to me was the fact that there's such a patchwork of attitudes and progress and intent. And the consequence of that is 
that if you assume all things are equal in all places, you've got a fair chance of running into error. That's the final question for the session. So it just leaves me to say thank you very much, panellists. Just a reminder, the report will launch in November. So look out on the socials for more in terms of the launch of the report in the coming weeks. In the meantime, if you actually want to talk about any of these topics using an old-fashioned telephone or a messaging system of your choice, feel free to get in touch with any of the team here. You were listening to DLA Piper Partners Richard Edwards, Caroline Pope, Tumisang Mungkai, Alison Ether and Susanna Newbolt speaking at the DLA Piper Global Construction Conference in Dubai. The report, out on the 16th of November, can be downloaded from our website. If you'd like to talk about any of the topics we've touched on in this podcast, or if you'd like us to come and discuss the findings of the report with you and your colleagues, please get in touch with any of our partners. We'd be happy to do so. Thank you for listening. Any information in this podcast is for general guidance only and is correct as at the date of recording. This podcast is not intended to be and should not be used as a substitute for taking legal advice in any specific situation. For full terms and conditions, please see our website. Thank you for listening to the DLA Piper Infrastructure Podcast. Subscribe now through your usual podcast provider so you don't miss an episode. Thank you.